Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 8, 13 to 18. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of this year, uh, if you were around, you'll recall, and something that's been ongoing, we we launched a a campaign called Feast to Flourish. This Feast to Flourish campaign, uh, it's multiple things, but really the driving engine behind it is is this church-wide chapter-a-day Bible reading plan. The whole idea was to get everybody who calls Sacred City Church their home to get their nose in the Word of God on a daily basis. It's something we could all do together as a church family. And uh, it's, it's been well-received. I've, I've heard from many of you, it's been really encouraging to have some accountability in this, going through a Bible reading plan day by day, um, and something that we're gonna continue to do uh, well into the future. Um, and, and the reasoning why I felt the Lord leading us into this sort of feast to flourish campaign, uh, many reasons behind it, but, but first of all, was to, um, I wanted to liken reading your Bible to feasting um, because Jesus says, as he quotes Deuteronomy, um, that man cannot live on bread alone, but relies upon the word of God. And so with that in mind, this idea that we can't make it through the day, we can't make it through life without going to feast on the word of God. And so too many of us, too many Christians in general, um, make their way through life on a, uh, a spiritually anorexic lifestyle. Just don't have the meat and potatoes of God's word filling up our bones day in and day out. So I really wanna invite all of us into feasting on the word of God daily. Um, But beyond the daily occurrence of feasting on God's word, there's another reason um, that I I wanted to call us into this Feast to Flourish campaign, and that's because uh, we can get more work done when we are well-fed. Try building a house, try try pouring concrete uh, on an empty stomach. 
right? You, you cannot eventually, if you don't have the right amount of sustenance in your body, you will flop over. You don't have the energy to do the work that you have been, that's been put before you. And the Lord has called the church to do a mighty work, to disciple the nations, to make disciples, as we say, make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. There's a big task in front of us. And if, if we don't have the word of God sustaining us, filling us up, then we cannot see those big things happen. As we're filled up on the word of God, big things happen little bits at a time. And this is something that we are seeing uh, through the story of, of Nehemiah chapter eight. Um, in fact, at the beginning of chapter eight in, in Nehemiah's story here, um, what we see is that they have their own little feast to flourish campaign. That's uh, a big old rally. All of the people of Jerusalem come to the water gate. They come, there's a platform built. They have Ezra the scribe get up there and for six hours, uh, he, he preaches, he reads the word of God, the law of Moses to the people. And what we saw through the last couple of Sundays as we've preached through the first part of chapter eight is we've seen that it's, it was a very emotional day for them. Uh, it first started out, people were eager to hear from the word of God. The, the, the word was preached, they heard it. It caused joy, worship. The people were stirred uh, toward God. And then all of a sudden, we, we see that they're weeping, that they're hit by this wave of grief, and then all of a sudden, the leaders say, hey guys, this is a special day that's been set aside. We need to rejoice, and so they go right back to rejoicing. So really, quite the roller coaster of a day. And I've said it before, uh, I'll say it again, that this is one of the bright moments um, in Israel's history. And as we see this bright day, this day where the people of God come to feast on the word of God and, and they have a, a legitimate interaction with it. It's not just background noise in their life, but their hearts, it's resonating, it's playing on the, heart, heart, the, the strings of their heart. They're having this real legitimate interaction with the word of God. It's doing something in them. The question is, are we going to see a new trend? Is this the start of a new era or are they gonna wake up tomorrow and go right back to their old ways? And as we continue through our passage today and round out Nehemiah chapter eight, what we see is not only encouraging, we, we, we see them stacking good day upon good day, but it's not only encouraging to see that, what it does, Nehemiah eight gives us a pattern for reformation in our time right now so that more bright days would be ahead for the church. And so with that, let us turn our attention to our passage for today and dive in and see what's going on. Like I mentioned, uh, as we'd open up, it, it, verse, verse 13 says, on the second day, which means that this is the day following. So immediately after that roller coaster, uh, emotional roller coaster of a day, um, after that big feast to flourish rally, the people once again are returning to the word of God. We see it here. Uh, verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the word of the law. So once again, people are returning to the word. They got their fill yesterday, time to fill up again today. But this time, well, we see it's unique. It's not everyone. We saw the day before all of the people were coming. All of the people came and they sat beneath the teaching of the word of God. But today, what we see, the, the people we see coming forward are the leading men of the community. 
We see the, the uh, heads of fathers' houses of all the people. So, so there's, there's household representation and the, the fathers of those households are there. Um, we see with the priests, the Levites, and then Ezra the scribe, it's all of the leading men of Israel there underneath the preaching of God's word. So after yesterday's festivities, all of the excitement, the buzz that they, they experience around the word of God, they're coming right back to it and they open up the law of Moses once again and they begin to study. And here's what it tells us as we move into verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all of their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Now, we wonder what, is going on here? What, what are they talking about in booths? Is this like some sort of vendor fair? They're supposed to go to something? Um, but context clues tells us that they're, they're more than likely studying Leviticus 23. Um, this is the first place where God commands Israel to observe the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles is another name for it. Um, although it could have been other passages like Numbers 29 or Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16 um, because the Feast of Booths is also mentioned there. But, but the purpose here, what, what they're running up against is this celebration that God had commanded their people to keep. The Feast of Booths is this eight-day festival, feast that is, starts on the 15th day on the seventh month. So they're sitting right there on the second day of the seventh month realizing, oh, there's something coming up on our calendar that we weren't aware of. And so they're dialed in here for a minute. Um, and and, and the, what they're realizing here as they study scripture is the Feast of Booths, it starts and ends with a day of holy convocation. It's, it's a Sabbath rest, a day where there's not any kind of ordinary work, where they take a break from the grind and rest in God and his provision. But then the rest of the week, the, the days in between those two Sabbath days, is all a, a giant festival, it's rejoicing, it's feasting, it's a big old party. Um, and the spirit of this week, uh, a, a holy week, not just a holiday, uh, a holy day, but, but a holy week is that of thanksgiving. That the people are rejoicing, they're giving thanks to God. And this is really meant for, for two reasons, um, two big reasons behind the spirit of the Feast of Booths. One has to do with the season of year. Um, this would have landed right toward the end, uh, well, the end of September, October, depending on how, how it shakes out. Um, so it would have fallen right at the end of the harvest cycle. Um, all of the people have gathered their portions, um, and, and so they get to rest from a long season of working hard, and they're celebrating God's provisions in their immediate, con immediate context. And some believe that this is where the pilgrims uh, got their idea for our American Thanksgiving. They saw this pattern in, in the Israelites with the patterns of harvesting and giving thanks with the festival, with the big feast, and that's where they adopted or the idea of Thanksgiving came from. So here, the Thanksgiving comes from the fact that, hey, God provided for our needs. We have food that'll last us into or through the winter, into the spring, into the next harvest. But it's not just that celebration of provision in the immediate context, this was a feast that was also to celebrate God's provision throughout the history of Israel. During the fe Feast of Booths, 
the Israelites were to build um, these booths or, or tents, think of that, temporary shelters where they would live in, um, out of sticks, out of leaves, branches, whatever they could find. Um, it had this really outdoorsy vibe. You can think of it as a, a nationwide family camping trip, if you will. That's, that's essentially what it was. They would leave behind their own homes, set up these temporary dwelling places, and for a week, that's where they would live out of. And the reason that they would do this, it would connect them to Israel's story as God had led them out of Egyptian slavery and into the wilderness for, for, 40, uh, for 40 years, living in these temporary dwelling shelters as they went from place to place. In fact, this is explicitly, this connection is explicitly made in, in Leviticus 23 when this is being commanded. Um, let me find it here. It says uh, in verse 23, Leviticus 23, verse 41, it says, you shall celebrate it, the Feast of Booths, as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I have made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so this celebration um, celebrates the immediate context of God's provision, but, but really even more so God's grand provision for his people in bringing them out of slavery and bringing them into the promised land. And as these leading men are studying the word of God, um, they're coming to this passage, they're brushing up against it, they, they're having this realization. It sounds like this, oh no, oh, oh no, we haven't been doing this right. In, in Leviticus 23, 41, it says, this is a, a statute that is meant to be kept throughout all generations. And here they are, they, they're realizing they have broke this command. And what they're realizing as they have read scripture, they find that scripture has been reading them. And maybe you've experienced that before, where you've opened up the word of God, maybe you sat down for your daily devotion, the chapter a day, sat down, open up the word of God and you start reading and all of a sudden you sense that God through his word is calling you out onto the carpet. Maybe he wants to have a word with you about something. He's talk to you about your attitude, talk about your grumbling spirit. Talk about maybe, maybe it has to do with uh, a lack of, of missional living, not, not engaged. You're not thinking about the people that God is desiring to save out in our city and you sort of just kind of keep to yourself. Maybe God's calling out the thoughts or the destructive tendencies that are internal dialogues in your head, bitterness and resentment, or, or maybe it has to deal with, with uh, some, some bit of morality or, or generosity, whatever that is. God has the ability through his word to call you out. It's like the Holy Spirit poking you in the chest saying that I need to have a word with you. Now, what's interesting is that this doesn't just happen in these new to you passages, not just the places that you've, You've, you come into the scriptures and you've like never, you have no recollection of ever reading this before. You've never interacted with this text. Um, a lot of times it does happen there, but, but oftentimes the Lord does this in the passages that you are most familiar with. The passages that you have memorized, the passages that, that easily come to your heart and you, you just realize the spirit brings to your attention. There's a depth to this. There's something that you're glossing over and the Lord wants to deal with you through that text. Now, when that happens, when you feel the poke of the Spirit, 
oftentimes, uh, we want to ignore it. We want to say, you know, um, I'm just not ready to, to process this. I, I don't have the bandwidth at this moment in time. Which is why it's really important for us, whatever the excuse is, whatever the reason for us trying to bypass that, that dealing with the Lord in that moment. Um, it, it's, it's really important for us to hear the words of, of Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, which tells us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Right? Don't, don't turn your face away from what the, when the Lord is trying to speak to you directly. Now, if, if we do, if we live into the fleshly tendency, what's gonna happen is we are going to shut down the good work that God wants to do through conviction and repentance and renewal. We'll miss out on, on this, this new era, this new beginning, the, the new, new morning mercies, and we revert back to our old, our old ways. Now, as these leading men get the, the fingers in the chest here, Spirit saying, hey, you guys, we got something to talk about. As these leading men come across an unfamiliar passage, what we see of them is not hard hearts, but soft hearts. There, there's a willingness to receive the rebuke, the, the confrontation from God, and hear God out to see what he's trying to do. Now, while this passage may be unfamiliar in some ways, um, the idea of the Feast of Booths is not an unfamiliar idea. Um, we, we saw back in Ezra chapter three um, that the people of Israel actually had the Feast of Booths, but, but the place where the, the men are experiencing this conviction is not that they didn't have like a, a, a marker to indicate when this celebration was to happen. The conviction they're experiencing is that they are not keeping this feast, this celebration properly. See, they've been doing all of the fun stuff. They've been eating, they, they've been celebrating, but the whole thing about you know, building tents and living in these temporary dwelling shelters, they, they weren't doing that. And they, they realized that they were not only missing out on the full experience of the Feast of Booths, right? Which is meant to, to root them back in their history as Israelites, but they were being disobedient to God for God had directly commanded them as part of keeping the celebration to build these places to dwell in. And what we see as we go down to verse 17 here is that this pattern, this, this um, incomplete manifestation of the Feast of Booths has been going on for a long time. This was not a new development. Uh, it says that actually since the days of Joshua, it is that, that this has not been kept properly. So for a long time, generations and generations, they have not been building these tabernacles like they were meant to do. And they're just doing the fun parts of, of the celebration. Now, this is concerning because God gave Moses this command, this, this law here in uh, early on. Um, he gave it to Moses and then by the time of Joshua is the time that they stop keeping this command. That's only one generation removed from the time that God gave them this command to hold the Feast of Booths this way. Only one generation. Now this shows us that God's people are quick to forget and prone to wander. 
right? Something that we see, I mean, even today in one of our songs, um, the, the come thou fountain, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is a tendency, even of God's best and brightest people, we have this potential to veer and to drift away. Pastor Ray Ortland says that we are always only one generation away from complete apostasy. We're only one generation away from completely forgetting, from, from completely diverting off of the track, uh, the, the path of the righteous, going our own way, and all it takes is one bad choice repeated to veer people away for a long time. All it takes is that one bad choice repeated to set a bad trajectory, to set a bad precedent that other people will come along behind and mindlessly follow. And when things get off track, which they often do, because we are sinful, flawed, broken, limited people, forgetful at the top of that, when things get off track, it takes men of courage and conviction to get things back on track. It takes men who refuse to settle on the status quo, even if it means sacrificing comfort, convenience, and familiarity. For example, it would have been so easy for these leading men hearing the word of God say, well, we've been doing this for generations. Why change it up now? I mean, like, after all, think of it. We gotta go gather sticks and branches and twigs and leaves and build these shelters. Nobody wants to go camp. Like, maybe a handful of people wanna go camping, but not everybody wants to go camping. It'd be so much easier, way more convenient if we just kept doing what we are doing. But these leading men are the ones who are willing to say, this is right by the Lord. We must do it this way. It takes bold and courageous leaders to stand up and say, to call people back to the word of God, to, to, to align people to the word in obedience. Now, these are the kind of men that we see in the passage. They, they reroute the ship that was once lost at sea towards obedience to the word of God, specifically dealing with the Feast of Booths. And what we see is their leadership is well-received. Verse 16 through 18, take a look here. It says, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each of his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all of the assembly of those who had returned from the ca captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now what we see here, as the leading men are, are pricked with conviction, they, they have this reality. The Lord wants to bring us, to reform us, to bring us in alignment to the scriptures. They call the people to follow along, to get on board, and they do so. This is encouraging. When, when godly leadership leads in a godly direction and, and the followers of those godly leaders go along with the way that they're leading. 
And what we see here for the first time in a very, very long time is a, a proper celebration of the Feast of Booths. Everybody, everybody, all of the nation building these tents, living in it, feasting. There's, there's offerings and sacrifices that go along with it. And look at the effect that it has on the people. It says not just that there was rejoicing, not just that there was great rejoicing, but it says that there was very great rejoicing. God blessed his people with a tremendous joy as they aligned themselves to the word of God. See, God is for the joy of his people. And the way that God leads us into joy is saying, here are the statutes, here are the ways, here is what it looks like to walk in joy. And the people of God take him up on his offer and here they find great joy. Now, that's what's going on in this passage, just the summary of all that. But if you step back and, and just ask yourself, what's really going on here? What, what's this passage really documenting? This passage is documenting a mini reformation. Reformation is the process of realigning an institution or a practice to a new or abandoned standard to omit evil conduct or error and to promote good. So reformation is the process of, of doing away with the bad things, of, of revamping. Everything comes under scrutiny of saying, are we doing this right? And, and the evaluation is done by some kind of a standard and then it moves us towards ejecting the bad and launching us towards the good. Now, one of the best examples of reformation is what happens with Martin Luther back in 1517 and, 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 and Calvin and Geneva and Zwingli, all these guys, these reformers who saw there was something wrong in the church. Like we need to go back to the word of God. We need to reform how we are doing things because we've gotten off course. Now we're seeing a mini reformation of this. this, this what we see in, in Nehemiah 8 is significant, but it's, it's not as epic as what we see in 1517 and, and the following years that, that come after. And while it would be lovely to see another epic reformation in my lifetime, and boy, oh boy, do I pray for this, to see this epic reformation occur means that a thousand little reformations must take place before that. See, before the world can experience reformation, nations must experience reformation. Before nations experience reformations, cities must be reformed. Before cities can be reformed, churches must be reformed. And before churches are reformed, families must be reformed, which means before your family can be reformed, reformation starts right inside your chest. That you, on the individual level, must be realigned in all areas to the word of God. Now, reformation isn't this thing that's like way out beyond reach. Um, reformation really ought to be the state of every Christian heart 
and home. Every, the state of every Christian church, right? That the motto of the Reformation was the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. So it's not just this one-time deal where, okay, we made, we made one change and we're done, but Reformation is this ongoing process of we're asking ourselves, what does the word of God say? How does it speak to us right now? What's it calling out of us? And how do we obey the word of God now? Reformation means we are constantly undergoing sanctification through the, word of God, the, through the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I believe is that Nehemiah chapter eight gives us a general template for what reformation looks like. It gives us the ability to say, okay, if we want reformation, here are some real practical things, real practical steps that we take in order to move to that end. And the first thing that reformation starts with is the word of God. The first thing reformation starts with is the word of God a high view of God's word, to, to view it as authoritative, to view it as, as the key to joy and flourishing. Because these are not just any man's words. These are the very words of God filled with power and wisdom. And when God's word is doing work, which we're told God's word is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, when God's word does work, it does work. It's powerful. It, it's, it, we're, we're told that the word will not return void. Now, Martin Luther testifies to this in a sermon. Uh, he speaks, speaking on the power of the word. He says this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. See, this is the view. If, if, if reformation is to occur, it can't come from our ideas. It can't come from our, our just in, in, uh, our intuition. It can't come from our ingenuity. It has to come from the word of God. It's the, the engine that drives reformation. And so there must be, like we see here in these men of, of Israel, there must be a high regard for the word of God and a constant pursuit of it. And as the word does the work, the second piece of the puzzle here is that we must have men who lead courageously towards obedience to the word of God. There, have, there has to be leading men. There has to be men of conviction and courage and, and Lord willing, there would be a man of God in every household directing his family in this way that they would be refined and sanctified. And not just in their own households, but in the household of God. That this is something that happens on different levels in the individual and in, the, in the, the nuclear family and to the family of God. But for too long, we've seen men sit on the sidelines in the church. We've seen men 
not living into their design that God has, has wired them to lead. Now, men are always going to lead. It's just a matter of, are they gonna be good leaders or bad leaders? And the word of God instructs us on how to be good leaders and how to lead our people toward flourishing. And so it's time for the men of God to rise up, to reject apathy, to rise up, to take initiative, and to be students of the word of God. Now, when we study the word of God, something profound happens. It's like God shoots us with 40 cc's of, of confidence, of, 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 of courage and conviction. Because the word of God gives us a firm foundation to stand on. It's not just saying, hey, well, I think that maybe this might be a good way to, it doesn't give us any of that wishy-washiness. It gives us a clear and strong foundation. This is the ground that I stand on. That's what gave Luther the ability to stand up and say, I will not recant. And so we need men who study the Bible rigorously, that find a deep confidence in the word of God and ask themselves the question, what of my life needs to be reformed? What of my family needs to be brought into alignment with God's word. Now, not only do we need leaders to lead convictionally and courageously, but we need an eagerness of those who aren't leaders to follow those leaders towards obedience to the word of God. Now, one of the things that when I talk about spiritual leadership Oftentimes, I talk about the duty of a leader. Um, There's something that I just hammer a lot. Like, the, if you're a leader, if you're a husband, if you're a father, if you're in the church leading in some capacity, there, there, is, a, there is a heavy burden on your shoulders. You have a responsibility to carry it. The Lord has placed that upon you. He's given you broad shoulders for a reason. But it's not just the leaders who have a duty. God tells us that followers also have a duty. We see this in several places, but one of the ones that, that it gets the point across very clearly is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So here's the reality. If, if, if you are under a spiritual leader who is following the word of God, that is seeking reformation, that you ought to submit to their leadership, that you ought to, to yield to the direction that they're leading you as long as it's in a, accordance to the word of God because they are doing this to keep watch over your souls. To, to your benefit, they are leading. And of course, here it tells us again that there's, there's a, these leaders have to give an account. So there, there's this reality that the stakes are high. Trust that they realize that there's a, a heavy burden on their shoulders. And then the command to those following says, let the leaders do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So it's saying here that as a follower, you ought to be eager to follow those who are leading you into obedience to the word of God. If you're resistant to it, it's of no advantage to you. It's making it difficult for the leaders to lead like God has called them to lead you. But God has given you leaders, and everybody's led by somebody. God has given you leaders to guide you towards reformation. Even, even when 
it's not your idea, right? Hey, it might be something that's not on your radar. Hey, I didn't think about, I wasn't thinking about that. But, but whoever's your, your leader said, hey, we need to think about this. God is inviting you into reformation through their leadership. We need to trust ourselves to God and trust ourselves to the leader so that God could do the good work that he's doing. And as we have the word and leaders who are leading people into the word, the last piece of reformation, there has to be obedience to the word of God. Now this is pretty straightforward. When we hear God, when God speaks to us through his word, we ought to obey, we ought to listen. We say what, we say to ourselves, what, what does God's word say? Okay, yeah, then we're gonna go with that. that that's, that's what we're going to do. Because if we are, are, are merely hearers of the word and not obeyers or doers of the word, we have a, a detached spirituality. We, we have a, a disformed version of discipleship. But in order for us, it's straightforward as hearing and obeying the word, but in order for us to hear and obey the word of God takes a supernatural work to be done inside of us. A kind of work that, that we cannot do in and of ourselves. We can't, we can't just perform our way to it. We can't go through the check marks of, of the whole thing to produce this. We are reliant upon God to incline our hearts towards trusting and obeying his word. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 36. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. See, in order for us to be people who, who are willing to, to step on the carousel of reformation, to get on, on the boat toward, toward reforming our lives and our homes and our church and our, our city and our world, God has to do something. He has to change our hearts so that they would be inclined to receive his words and obey his words. In order for this to happen, take something more than just reformation. It takes regeneration. In order for your heart to be inclined to obey God, to hear his word, to love his word, to obey his word, the Lord has to change your heart. Not, not, just, not just put some bow ties on it and fix it up a little bit, spruce it up. He has to give you an entirely new heart. See, our, our hearts that were warped by sin has a tendency, as it says here, to, to be totally bent towards selfish gain, towards self-interest, my own ways, which is how the Israelites drifted into this long foray into uh, not upholding the Feast of Booths as they ought to. And that was just one area where we see this disformity in their spiritual life. See, before we can be reformed by the word, God has to resurrect our hearts. He has to extract our old, cold heart stones, stone hearts, and replace them with a new beating heart of flesh. God has to birth a new creation out of us. A new creation that knows and loves God.